welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence, and today we're going to dive a bit deeper into the psychology of diet and exercise as we welcome to the show Dr. Mary Jung. Dr. Jung is an associate professor in the Faculty of Health and Social Development at the University of British Columbia, as well as a Michael Smith Foundation health research scholar. Mary's passion is researching the self-regulation of health behaviors, primarily the promotion and adherence to physical activity and healthy diets in people living with or at risk of type 2 diabetes. Dr. Jung directs the Diabetes Prevention Research Group and strives to see evidence-based lifestyle interventions implemented in the community to serve those in need. If you've ever struggled with diet and exercise habits, this podcast is chock full of great information. We'd like to apologize in advance for the audio quality on our end, because if it sounds like we were recording from a metal tin in a windy desert, it's because we were speaking with Mary from a metal tin in a windy desert. On the bright side, Mary takes the reins through most of this podcast, and the audio quality on her end was just as sharp as her information. So without further ado, here's Mary Jung on episode 33 of the Move Daily Health Podcast. So welcome to the Move Daily Podcast. What we'd first like to start talking to you about is what your background is and what got you started in the field of health and fitness and what predated the research that you do now. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And uh, a bit of a funny story. I I actually started out by lying about my age. Uh, I wasn't allowed to join a, a gym, but I was really interested in health and fitness. And I really wanted to be a fitness instructor. So I, uh, I said I was 16 when I was only 15 and miraculously uh, convinced them to let me join and then also hire me as a fitness instructor after I had my certifications and started teaching. So from a very early age, wanted to uh, help others. And that segued into becoming a personal trainer. And that's what funded me through my university degrees, actually. And, and as things go along, I was in an undergraduate kinesiology program and started learning about exercise psychology and how all of these factors that really do influence whether somebody you know, chooses to exercise and, more importantly, maintains that exercise behavior, we can we can change those factors. They're quite malleable. And so as a poor starving student, it's really relevant information when you want your clients, who your personal training, who pay you per hour to come back. <laughs> and also when you're fitness instructing, those who got the most number of uh, people in their classes got the best time slots. And so I was also very motivated to, to learn what I could do within one hour that would encourage my, you know, the people in my class to come back the next week. So I became very, very interested in my exercise psychology classes and, and they started working. So I knew I was onto something when my boss came up to me and said, okay, what are you doing? What is the trick? You're, you know, you're blowing it out of the water with the, <laughs> the revenue you're bringing in. Can you teach the other personal trainers and fitness instructors what you're doing so that they can have the same effect. So long story short, I've been interested in the topic of helping people stick to their exercise regimes since I was 15. 
That's fantastic. And uh, we can both appreciate because our degrees were in uh, human kinetics and physical and health education, yeah. aka gym. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was a very heavy science degree, and we had to do a psychology course. And all of us who were very um, happy in the sciences were like, why do we have to do that? Then we started working with people. And we realized, oh, <laughs> that's why <laughs> all the knowledge in the world about how the body works and energy systems and most effective training for X, Y, Z. But until you understand the person that you're trying to apply it to, that information doesn't get you very far. <laughs> yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. And um, also just to really value that psychology is a science. It's, it's actually one of the oldest sciences around. And the rigor that goes into any study within psychology is, I'm biased, I think is absolutely fascinating. But um, I hear from what you're saying, the applicability of such science is so relevant, right, for anybody who works in the health field. So Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, huge. Cause our, our impression was just like, well, we don't have a lab for this. So yeah. Right. And you know, you're, you're 17 and a little bit perhaps naive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how did you manage your health throughout your personal training, your university, and then ultimately motherhood while also being a researcher? <laughs> so maintaining was easy when my job was to help others get fit by teaching fitness classes. <laughs> so during my undergrad, my master's, my PhD, and my postdoctoral fellowship, uh, even up right into being a professor, I was teaching multiple aerobics classes, everything from spin to yoga to strength training to you know your traditional group fitness. Um, actually, what the challenge was was not doing too much because that can also be harmful on the body, of course. So it's hard when that's how you make your money and that's how you eat. So anyways, that's another story. But um, the motherhood aspect of things, I remember teaching a fitness class and I was six months pregnant and it was a step class. And I remember a mother, she was not pregnant at the time, looking at me and saying, oh, you're going to get it. And it was just such an angry look and comment. And I said, oh, you know, why? What do you mean? And she said, you're never going to be able to exercise like you did after you have this child, almost like in a, you know, vindictive manner. And I smiled because that's what you do when you're wearing a mic. But yep. <laughs> I remember thinking in my head, oh, you don't know me one bit. <laughs> I will prove you wrong. <laughs> And a bit about, you know, the job that I have and the opportunities I have, I, I certainly cannot be hypocritical. So if I'm going to tell busy working mothers to exercise, I certainly can't not exercise. So I'll be honest, there's a, a lot of accountability that motivates me on a weekly basis. Yeah, for sure. And both Fran and I have trained quite a few pregnant women over the years. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, again, I think we're going to discuss this a lot more with you on this podcast, but I think a lot of it comes down to identity. And if you think that exercising through your pregnancy is going to do good things for you and that you can exercise right to give birth and then get right back into it, then you can do that. But if you mm -hmm. have serious doubts about what's going to happen and you're anxious and you don't believe it, then that can take you down a completely different road. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there on this topic. Sure is. You're yeah. an example of what can be done. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Um, that's the sad part is the misinformation bit and how far that travels. Absolutely. And I think even recently, didn't they change the recommendations for pregnant women to now say yeah. vigorous exercise is recommended now? Yeah, they did, which is so fantastic. And and you wonder how it possibly took that long, <laughs> right, for this research to get out there to be like, no, really, it is safe. Well, and I think you just hit the nail on the head in terms of safety, too. When it comes to some of the research you've even done on HIIT training, you know, there's that perception of it's unsafe, even though really somebody who's out of shape can only push themselves so much in the research now is pretty conclusive that it can benefit everyone. And as mm. your friend and colleague, Marty Gavala said, it, it's better to do something than nothing at all. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, there's some amazing statistics in terms of hours spent doing cardiovascular activity that is more traditional or what we consider more traditional, you know, continuous and moderate pace, and the number of incidents that occur, cardiovascular incidents versus the number of hours spent doing HIT and the number of incidents that occur. And we will never be able to uncover congenital heart disease in individuals uh, who are, for, for example, playing uh, road hockey on a Sunday afternoon with a bunch of buddies. So there's going to be some predisposition for some other than others, but the vast majority of situations, it's entirely safe and sitting and doing nothing, refraining because you're afraid of a condition is quite possibly putting you more at risk of having something like a heart attack. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Sitting idle is basically the worst thing anyone can do. Yeah. If you don't use it, <laughs> you can lose it. Yeah. You do have to move the body. So one of the things that you study is self-regulation for health management in various populations and using a variety of tools. So can you explain to our listeners what this entails and how difficult is it to gather accurate data? Ooh, yes, I'd be delighted to. So <laughs> self-regulation is doing the stuff that we know we should do and avoiding the stuff that we know we should avoid, which, you know, the famous saying of it's 10% physical and 90% mental, that's where that kind of stuff, I would slot it in there. The stuff between your ears that for most of us, we don't have to think back very long when we had a situation where we had to use those self-regulatory skills to, for example, you know, avoid having a certain snack, or perhaps we didn't use those skills and we had the snack that we know we probably shouldn't have, but did. And so what I get to do as a scientist is, is to study which of those skills works best in certain situations. And then really cool is how to teach people how to use those self-regulatory skills in certain situations. So if I, for example, you know, uncover and several of my colleagues uncover something that we, we know works in um, situations about exercise. So I'm going to throw one out there about negative self-talk. So if negative self-talk we find over and over again is quite prohibitive, people think that it will motivate them to exercise, but it actually works the opposite way, then we want to spread the word, you know, we, we want to tell people, hey, negative self-talk is not, is not your best route to encourage yourself. So then simply telling somebody that is probably not going to work. <laughs> so we have to find strategies that increase people's use of positive self-talk and reduce the frequency of their negative self-talk. 
Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And it's so interesting because uh, we speak to our clients about the power of words and particularly when working with some of our clients who are dealing with injuries and recovering from a life event, there are so many words that are really quite negative, like I'm broken or I'm this and that mm-hmm. right into that mm-hmm. cycle and that identity piece as well. Mm-hmm. And and then the the second piece of your question, Dame, about the difficulties or challenges in measuring that stuff is again because it's between your our ears. How do we know whether somebody's engaging in critical thought processes, or how do we know if we teach people cognitive reframing? How are they? How do we know if they're actually using it? And um, there's a multitude of methods to do that. That's where I think the fun in science begins when we're um, assessing something that can be seen in front of somebody's eyes. So, for example, an implicit attitudes test where we might throw uh, words up on a screen that are too fast for the human eye and brain to apparently see. But yet we process those words and somebody can reiterate back to you uh, negativity or positivity or something like that. Um, So there's, you know, there's acute tests like that. And then lots of times it's about assessing through validated measures that we get people to write down certain responses on about certain questions. The big ultimate test, though, that is nobody can lie on (laughs) is if I'm doing an intervention that supposed to change somebody's thought processes that will then change their physical activity behavior we measure the physical activity behavior (laughs) or we measure their fitness level because we cannot cheat a fitness test (laughs) just like you can't uh, cheat a weight scale or something like that so yeah we know when we're doing a good job when people are getting healthier yeah, when the numbers behind it don't lie. Yeah, you can't you can't cheat like a new test. <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> so with all your work, I mean, you acknowledge and acknowledge in one of your talks that knowledge is not enough. We all know that exercise is really important. There's so much attention to it in the media. There's so much research backing up many different styles of exercise as being beneficial. And we know that it reduces all-cause mortality. Mm-hmm. But in one of your talks, you spoke about the zero association between knowledge and exercise versus one's future exercise behavior. So can you mm-hmm. elaborate on how we shouldn't should people? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, and it's tricky. I mean, okay, not everybody knows that exercise is good, but but for argument's sake, I, I think the vast majority do. And for those individuals, reminding them, one might say nagging them, it is simply not helpful because it becomes off as a should. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like a criticism from the people that you care enough about or value their opinions enough about um, to listen to them and engage in conversation. So the tools, what we need to provide are much more than education. You know, it's like telling somebody they really should be saving money when they have no job or no means or avenue, you know, to a source of income. What the tool they need is, is not, you know, a financial planner. What they need is a job. (laughs) They need a tool in which they can then carry out the behavior that will lead to the ultimate outcome. So if we want to help people, 
what, and you know, and this goes from healthcare practitioners to, you know, trying to help your partner or trying to help your aging parents. We, when, when we tell people that, oh, you know, I saw this awesome exercise program, you should really join that. Or, you know, we do it in, out of a place of, of compassion and care for that individual. And so it's never, you know, it's very often not a pointing the finger at somebody. It's, it's because we care and we know that exercise can help and we want to help them. We just are not helping them if we don't provide the tools that they need. Yeah, 100%. And I think you can probably resonate with this. I'm sure Fran and I can resonate with this where we have people in our inner circle that, you know, might have a problem with their health. And sometimes, you know, you just have to bite your tongue and you just have to wait until they reach out for that help because, it's, you know, we have some knowledge and we can share that with them, but we right. don't want that should all the right. time. Yes. Yeah. I make fun of myself a lot when I'm teaching the undergraduate students in our courses here. And I tell them the story about uh, me trying to help my father uh, who had a myocardial infarction when I was in high school. And so, you know, that's scary. And I really care about him. So I wanted to help. And, you know, being heavy into fitness, I was adamant that this is it, you know, he's got to change his exercise behavior. And he's got to change his diet. So I set up a plan for him and he's going to do this and it's going to be progressive and it's, it's going to be all evidence-based and went into first year university. And so because I didn't have, you know, I was no longer living with him, I had this great plan that every day he would email me what he ate and I would critique that and send him his next dietary plan for the next day. And I was thinking I was quite genius, you know, using this newfound technology to stay in touch with my dad and make sure he was on the right path. And how did that go? Yeah, well, he stopped emailing me. And then (laughs) surprisingly, he stopped calling every week too. And that was my first wake up call of my me pushing. I was doing the exact opposite of what I wanted to do. I was turning him off of any desire (laughs) to eat more healthfully and to exercise more. And I had to do what you're suggesting and actually wait for him to ask for help or see if he wanted to, my opinions, (laughs) rather than enforcing that on him. Absolutely. And so in this vein, then, no, shooting people certainly does not work. So how can people learn to successfully self-monitor? Yeah, self-monitoring is fabulous. If there is one tool (laughs) that I would suggest people start with, that is the one. So I think the magical mechanism is less important than the frequency of engaging in it. And what I mean by that is it can be your good old classic notebook, your scraps of paper, or it can be a very costly app or online program or literally paying somebody to hold you accountable and talking with a bit at each session. Whatever it is, that, you know, that mechanism or that tool that you use doesn't matter. Um, but the frequency is, is what holds the special sauce. So we can encourage people to set that particular behavior each day before they go to bed, for example, in the morning or at every meal, um, whatever's going to work for their, their daily life. And that honesty is pretty important here. So when we teach patients in our community, uh, we 
start themselves monitoring before we provide any guidance on their diet. So we need to we need to know what baseline is, and and then we can start changing things. When you're embarking on an exercise program, it's really important to have a phase in approach so that you know truly how active you are or are not um, before you start that exercise program, and that's that's when we can monitor progress, which is massively motivating for people to to see how far they've come. Yeah, that's really interesting because it is so hard. We we get clients to track in a variety of ways depending on their propensity to use technology or not use technology. Mm-hmm. I'm very much a notebook person, but I recognize a lot of the younger athletes we work with are more tech-based. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I'm now wondering how you maybe have seen changes within just self-monitoring in your research studies since you started a couple decades ago. How has that <laughs> evolved? Yeah, we definitely started out with a good old spreadsheet printed out on pieces of paper <laughs> and then would transfer that for uh, analytic purposes. <laughs> and, and actually, you're right, there is still uh, a good chunk of people that would prefer to have it in hard copy in front of them so that they can actually flip through and see. It's almost more, um, you know, tactile in terms of what we, you know, embody in in our latest and greatest research programs, we do go tech-based, but I still provide the option of people self-monitoring in notebooks if they want to. What happens to that data? We now take pictures of it and have to enter it the old painstakingly way. (laughs) But the opportunities that self-monitoring devices can do is really nice to basically do a bit of the legwork for individuals. So when we self-monitoring, there's a bunch of processes that go along with that that we often forget about. So the first is, you know, to have the lag in period. The second is to have a look back and reflect and then find the, um, the tricky spots. So for example, if somebody's trying to exercise three times a week and they never manage to do exercise on weekdays, then when we reflect over a number of weeks, that's when we see that pattern. And then the next step of self-monitoring is actually, you know, changing your plan so that you revise accordingly. Um, So it might be, okay, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm working out and that will get me to three days a week. Or it might be, you know what, my work days need to be shaken up a bit that I can't live like a weekend warrior. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, Frey and I have both had many clients come to us. We've been helping people track whether it be their diets or their exercise or any of that. And it's, it's always interesting to me when people reach out and they, they cross that first barrier of actually asking for help, which is huge, mm-hmm. and then engage in the process. And yet there is still a, a huge amount of resistance to putting in the time to self-monitor and to track honestly. Mm. And I find that sometimes there's a really interesting disconnect there by somebody who knows they need help. And yet there is a lot of resistance between how they're living their life and the behaviors they do day to day, and then the actions that they need to start changing. And there's that reluctance to actually track. But if you don't track, then you don't have the data you need to actually Mm -hmm. review and take that next step. Do you ever experience this? Oh, for sure. Sometimes it's painful, right? People 
I know you've probably experienced with um, mindless eating or episodes where things aren't just quite matching up into self-reported behavior and um, some of the fitness outcomes, right? And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> something's happening at night that is, is precluding the success of or achievement of your goals. Because it can be painful to acknowledge or admit that, you know, we aren't able to self-regulate or we're, have, we're having real struggles with certain behaviors. Um, so I think that is a lot of reasons why there's reluctance to self-monitor. And then when I was speaking about the legwork that some of the digitized self-monitoring tools can do for us, that's another bit. Self-monitoring in the past used to be very painfully slow and time-consuming. I'm sure you remember back in the days uh, when as a personal trainer, if I would, you know, devise a exercise and diet program, people would literally carry around the calorie king Bible, they called it. Yeah. And yes, right. So if you wanted to know how many calories were, well, let's not even go there. But like, if you're going through a salad, right, you'd have to go, okay, a avocado, da, 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 and then like, find on the 675th page, uh, romaine lettuce, and like, oh my gosh, the pain that that took, whereas now we can take a picture of our food and get a very accurate estimate of all the macronutrients and micronutrients we're eating. And so it really speeds it up. But people who aren't familiar with that technology might have reluctance around self-monitoring because they're not, they don't want to go back to those days where you have to, you know, record every little crumb. Right. Yeah. Cause it can also feel like the extremes, which mm -hmm. is not a pleasant place to live in long-term. Exactly. Yeah. You know, just speaking from some of the words shared with our participants, when we say, okay, we'd like you to do this and we're going to track for a year, they're like, are you kidding me? I'm not telling you every exercise I did every day. And when we say, no, 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 you know, the first two weeks we want accurate reporting. Then people get, once they do that first cycle of self-monitoring, they realize, okay, this works for me. This doesn't work for me. I've highlighted this. And they don't need to track every single day. Um, it's almost like a check-in point. So some people find it helpful to do that once a month. Some people find it helpful to do it every week and others like the accountability that it gives them, or they almost get the sensation of reward when they're able to log in an exercise session. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's where apps do jive well with some people, right? Mm -hmm. That little bit of dopamine hit of having <laughs> done the thing that they plan to do. Now you've been involved with quite a few universities did you notice any major differences in either recruitment or adherence within any of the populations you visited? Because the reason this question came about is because we had the opportunity to work in various provinces in Canada. We found some pretty substantial differences. And we were mm -hmm. curious that you studied such a broad scope of populations. If you noticed there were any, I suppose, trends in various parts of our country when it comes to health and behaviors. Mm hmm. Well, there's certainly data out there, the population level on, you know, activity levels in different provinces. In my time in Ontario, I would say that there was less enthusiasm to participate in research. And I don't think that was because there's not enough people who are inactive, <laughs> or 
needing assistance, um, but more so the mentality of being too busy is more present there <laughs> than it is in BC. You know, I'm making broad stroke generalizations here, but that's my been my experience. Now we know that BC is the um, most active province in Canada, but when you're talking about percentage of people who are inactive, there are so many, regardless of what province you are at, that there is never a lack of uh, participants in which we can assist. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So yeah, we have the vast majority of the population, as you know, is um, carrying excess weight that is harmful for their health because it's combined with inactivity. So there's never a shortage yeah, no, and that's very unfortunate, but I always find it very interesting. Now, we know that the weather in BC tends to be a little bit more forgiving through the winter months. <laughs> yes. Probably definitely a big piece as to why it's the most active province, but I think there's a, a big lesson to be learned there for just nature as well. People out in BC have the mountains, they have the ocean, they have greenery more year-round, and there's mm -hmm. so much research out there just kind of going to show that nature has a massive impact on health and well-being. So mm -hmm. that probably has a major impact on why BC is the most active province as well. I would harner guess that way as well. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a lot easier to be enticed to go outside and play if you're surrounded by beauty. And, and of course, there's beauty in all provinces. But um, yeah, that definitely can play a role. I also uh, did my PhD in Saskatchewan. And I can tell you that winter is it was sure tough for myself, not for all, but to, to go out for a run um, at minus 48 degrees at 6 a.m. It's, it's tricky. No, for me personally, that was not, it was hard to motivate. <laughs> and some people don't enjoy exercising inside. So um, that can put a, a big barrier. And that's not even speaking to, you know, to people with um, mobility challenges um, or who need to be particularly precautious of icy or uneven terrain, right? Yeah, and uh, that speaks to the external environment. <laughs> yeah. One of the big things that I've learned over my career is that environment is the biggest thing that will shape outcomes for people. So we just spoke about the weather and nature. Um, mm -hmm. This, I really like to take it internal as well and talk about the home and work environment, like what food is mm -hmm. around you, what access to, you know, exercise spaces around you, what are the mm -hmm. community like, what are your support network, are they healthy or unhealthy or exercising? So your environment can make things really easy or much more difficult for change. Can you speak to mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you totally tapped onto a lot that I would suggest um, are important factors. So social support, whether that's through friends or family or colleagues, it does make uh, a big difference. And interestingly, actually, it makes the amount of difference it makes depends on what age and what, I guess, what chapter of life you're in, right? So for university students, or high school students, young adults, what you think other people think is really important. <laughs> and it's crazy because you might not be accurate in your assumptions of what other people are thinking of you at all. But what what's going on in your head about what you assume somebody is thinking of you um, really can can dictate your behavior, whether you exercise or not, which is crazy. So there's the one piece in terms of logistics about what do we have in our 
inside environment, that for sure plays a role. A workplace might have a fitness facility in it. Um, Many people would assume that that's a great thing. But if that fitness facility is not well ventilated, it's ill lit, or it's frowned upon, then, and what I mean by that is there is not encouragement by one's employer to utilize that, or it's seen as, you know, not being a hard worker because you, you know, you take your lunch hours, not sitting in front of your computer, but you go work out. That has a massive impact on what um, somebody's behavior at work. That's uh, so interesting about the well-lit thing. A memory came to mind Mm -hmm. right away. I used to travel a lot for work and we were in one hotel and the gym had just the weirdest lighting. I just couldn't bring myself to go in after the first day. I just did like a hotel room workout because the lighting was so disruptive to me in the morning. But kind of on that track, a number of your studies have looked at the perception around a non-exerciser or (laughs) over-exerciser. Can you speak to a little bit of that and how that has played out in different populations that you've studied? Mm -hmm. Really uh, came to light when appreciating that those who are likely the fittest in our society, young university students, you know, well-educated, privileged to be, you know, at an institution, etc., had such negative perceptions of themselves and also such fear of what other people, whether other people were evaluating their physique. So this was research that I started off in my undergrad, actually, with uh, Kathleen Martin Guinness at McMaster University. And so um, when I talk about that fear, we talk about social physique anxiety. So these young, at the time, we were looking at young female fit students who were not overweight or obese, and their behavior is being dictated by how much anxiety they had about exercising in front of other people. So take that into the work that I do today in individuals who are overweight and obese and have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. And imagine the fear and the stigma that they perceive about going into a fitness facility with all these young, healthy-looking bodies wearing spandex. And, and you realize that, wow, if, if this young, fit 18-year-old has social physique anxiety, <laughs> imagine what it must be like to be 56 years old and obese and you know not feeling comfortable whatsoever in any exercise attire. That was a, a number of your studies touch on it, and it was really enlightening also that you focus on on self-compassion for all these populations and, and just generalizing, because I noticed like all the way from papers about celiacs to mm-hmm. less bodies to diabetes, self-compassion seems to be a really common theme, but also a directive of teaching people how to do that. How do you guys go about teaching that within your research? Yeah. Absolutely. We talked about tools earlier, and that's that's definitely a potent tool, I'd say. So self-compassion, you're right, it's what we're finding amazingly, and well, perhaps not surprisingly, <laughs> but it's, it's really lacking in a lot of populations with chronic disease. Um, sometimes because, you know, society, at least Western society, has put the blame a lot on having a chronic condition. And so 
how can we support ourselves or be kind in ourselves when we're sitting there blaming ourselves for even being in the spot that we're in right now, right? So we we hear from people who have overweight and obesity, like, I knew this, I've done this to myself, or, you know, my doctor told me, da, 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 the, the criticisms go on and on. And so there's three components that we try and encourage people to do for encouraging or teaching self-compassion. And um, one of them is acknowledging that other people are just like you. Like this is not a, this is not a problem that you and you alone share. Several people have said chronic condition or said disease. So when we recognize that, that we can relate to several other people and that helps, you know, that essentially can help the healing process. <laughs> and the other thing is being kind to ourselves. And I won't lie, this is not easy to do. People, again, in our society do definitely struggle regardless of what um, stage of life they're in. It's not, it's not something that comes across easily. And I don't think, I don't think we do a great job of teaching that anymore about being kind and compassionate to ourselves. So trying to think of a specific example, when we're in working with individuals with prediabetes, we might say, what might you do to be kind to yourself? And they'll often come up with examples that are very harsh, <laughs> you know, well, I sh- like I'll, I'll exercise harder tomorrow. And it's like, that, that might be your way, your act of, of being kind to yourself, but not in that manner. Like, it's almost like we need to celebrate yeah you know what would be awesome for me what my body really needs today is a bath or it might be my body really is begging for an awesome exercise workout where you know my whole body or my whole shirt is soaking wet like I love that feeling and I haven't allowed myself to give myself permission for that time yet but oftentimes people find it really tricky to even think of you know I should take care of my body today what what might taking care of my body look like today yeah, I think as you know, as the prevalence of social media rises, I think the mm-hmm. of self-compassion mm-hmm. goes down. It's, uh, it's a really tough world, I think, especially for teenagers and kids growing up, but even adults now. It's just you know, you see all these images out there of what is ideal, so to speak, and it can just really be hard to feel like you have to rise up to that and to achieve "quote unquote" perfection, which nobody's ever going to achieve. It's not possible, and self-compassion needs to be part of that part of that process just be like yeah i'm gonna have this cookie and i'm gonna enjoy it and then exactly yeah a lot of times when i start with clients who are with their objective of mainly losing weight we know that the psychological aspect is really really big on this and i always have the conversation with them up front about either blame or guilt and if they have any guilt about where they're at or if they're blaming anyone else about how they got to where they are now and mm-hmm. move forward from that, I just have them try and work through that and say, you know, are you hoarding anything, any, any of these emotions that might be holding you back from making the changes that you need to make or to treat yourself the way that you do deserve to be treated? And I find that if you don't take that initial step, it can be really, really hard to make those, those daily changes that you know will be beneficial. 
Oh, it's I, I'm smiling and agreeing with every word you're saying there. That's the difference between self-kindness versus our self-judgment. And that brings it actually back to when we were talking about the shitting people and how education is not enough. It's being self-compassionate means that we're really listening to ourselves. <laughs> and when we judge, and oftentimes we're literally judging ourselves, um, being harsh to ourselves, are comparing with others or extreme examples on social media that don't even exist in real life, we essentially blocking our internal motivation that can help us in the long term. Mm-hmm. The other component, that third component of self-compassion is just being mindful without being judgmental. So if we're trying to change our exercise behavior, then we need to know where we stand and being mindful enough to know what helps us versus what hinders us. So are we too busy at work? Is there spots in the day where we can be active? It requires that almost like that check-in, but not associated with judgment, right? So, oh, I didn't make time for myself again today. Like, oh, I'm so brutal. Like I failed again. You know, that that becomes with an evaluation that is not helpful, <laughs> but being mindful of, okay, you know, there might be a spot in my day or maybe literally there's not. Maybe it's like minute to minute packed days. This is not going to work for me. I cannot change my work day. What does, what does that look for me then? What, what could I do before or after work, you know? So that mindfulness can be integral to self-compassion. Yeah, the mindfulness is, I mean, it remains a buzzy word. I feel like it's been a pretty buzzy word for six years now. But it really uh, just speak to our clients about just the power of making conscious choices throughout your day and not just going through the motions of all the things that you typically do. Because at the end of the day, if you're trying to go for a new outcome, you do have to change the like little things throughout the day, little daily behaviors. And when you can change just one little daily thing at a time, whether that's taking the stairs or packing a lunch or whatever it may be, it's just giving it conscious thought to your health is ultimately the first step that you have to take. And that's what's going to give you those results long term. Mm-hmm. And doing that because you care about your body, not because you hate your body, right? I have a slogan here in my office that says, it's hard to be kind to yourself when you're mean to yourself all the time. So it's like, if we shift our inner voice from, you know, you're not good enough to, I'm good enough to care about myself, then it can really propel us into, I guess, again, bringing it back to motivating behavior change rather than shooting people to, shooting ourselves, really. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it happens all the time to ourselves as much as, as to others. And that mindfulness piece um, made me think that you, you can't know what you're, or sorry, you can't change what you're doing until you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it, it's challenging, you know, to slow down and, and actually recognize it's like, oh, this is what I'm doing. I am packing my day literally from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. Right. Room for my body to thrive. This is okay, this is on me, but not in a negative way. This is on me to listen to my system a little bit more clearly and figure something out. Now, speaking of time, you've done a fair bit of research in implementing HIIT training with uh, preventing chronic disease or managing chronic disease. And mm-hmm. in general, was that it would be too hard for people. Can you speak to some of the research and light you shed on that topic? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it came about because of time, right? So um, a lot of my colleagues, including um, Marty Gabala's group at McMaster, um, we're really drem- demonstrating these powerful, powerful, potent effects of HIT, and quite impressive that such a little amount of time could elicit such um, impressive physiological changes. And, you know, the big question for me or interest has always been, can people stick to it? And so we started with a simple study with Marty exploring, you know, whether people thought they could stick with it or not. And when working with individuals with type 2 with obesity, lo and behold, after they had just a few sessions of HIT, they were, they were hooked. Like they, they, they loved the benefits. They weren't scared. And there wasn't this attitude of, oh yeah, it's too hard or I'm just doing it for the study. It was really like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to continue this. People were buying bikes for their homes so that they continue it after the exercise or after the study ended. So this was all great and fine. It was surprising that there wasn't a lot of um, psychological studies around surrounding HIT yet. So I was really excited about this area. But then a, a debate came out, was published, arguing that HIT is not to be recommended for the general public. And they argued in that article a lot of reasons why, but none were evidence-based. So, so none had data or studies behind backing them up as to, as to whether those reasons were good or not. So I kind of have taken it upon myself and the students in my lab to, to continue ex- to explore the psychological responses to HIT so that we can really, using evidence, uh, evaluate whether HIT is do people feel good during hit? Do they feel bad during hit? What does what do those feelings do for their long term adherence to exercise? And start answering some of those questions with data. Jane got excited about the fact they were buying bikes. Afterwards. Yeah, I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> Which is really exciting. Um, I mean, it must be really rewarding to see that. People are taking what they've learned in the study and continuing it, which is really the end goal that they will apply. Absolutely. As much as the people who are reading about the research will potentially. Yeah. Oh, that's, I mean, that's, it's everything that I do is, is to help the health of the community of, of people at large. So when, you know, the last thing I want to have happen is to end a study and then people not continue to exercise or not continue to have that healthy diet that um, they were enjoying when they were part of a study. So yeah, it's the long-term game that matters. Um, that's what I'm after. Yeah. And, and when it comes to managing type 2 diabetes, how successful have participants been in continuing? Do you guys do follow-ups with mm-hmm. Yeah. So our longest follow-up time point right now is one year after they've completed the programs that we designed. So for individuals with prediabetes, we take them through a really brief three-week exercise and diet program. And then we follow up at six and 12 months. And and what we're finding at the six and 12 month point is really exciting. Uh, people um, not just maintain the weight that they've lost and maintain their fitness levels and their reductions in their HbA1c, which is a measure of blood glucose control. The, the most exciting thing we're seeing is they actually get fitter. And as you know, we talked about at the beginning, when you get fitter, that's your sheer indicate of 
whether you're exercising or not, because <laughs> you can't fake those tests. So it's just very rewarding to see, okay, you know, we can empower people to use these self-regulatory skills and tools, but they're actually using them when they leave our study and we check in in a year, they're, you know, they're using it. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, and that's just another big reason why, no matter what you're trying to do, you have to track. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you're, A, you're going to see, are you making progress or not? And when you see that you are making that progress, there's nothing more motivating. So yeah. it's so important to track your outcomes. And it's funny, but I think people forget and they, they don't, they think that they won't forget, but they do. They, you remember when you started out, you were only lifting 10 pounds and now you're lifting 50, right? Like, it's like, oh yeah, gosh, I kind of neglected that or, you know, it's not at top of mind, but when you can look back, you know, whether that's an app that prompts you with a graph or whether it's graph or whether that's, you know, a trainer or life coach in front of you, or it's looking back at your journal entries, I think it's really good to set almost like an alarm. Okay. At one year mark, I'm going to check back in and see what I was doing a year ago or six months ago or what have you. And it, yeah, it brings to light what progress you've made and gosh, that's so motivating to see your own values. Absolutely. I love that you guys are checking in that far along the line because I know that in uh, various areas of research, it can be, well, in all of them, it can be quite challenging to do that and to mm -hmm. for the long haul. But that's got to be really rewarding to be able to see that it has ex the effects of it have extended well beyond the length of the study itself. Mm -hmm. I won't lie. That's the most rewarding part. <laughs> it's, it's very exciting when we have uh, one year follow-up appointments in the lab. <laughs> um, so I feel like we might know the answer to this, but what generally keeps you curious and motivated with the work that you're currently doing? Oh, there's so many unanswered questions. <laughs> so we talk about, you know, the tools that we can use and which ones are malleable or what, what can we manipulate in the human brain to then help people become healthier. And we're not done, right? There's so many new tricks of the trade or tools that we really need to test. And so why that's so like what keeps me going there is that we can you know, that th then there's more opportunity to help people in even better ways. Um, so that definitely keeps me going. There's also a lot of work to be done. <laughs> so before, you know, it wasn't that long ago that people didn't even acknowledge in the healthcare system that prediabetes is a thing. We, we know these people are massively susceptible to other chronic diseases. Um, we can diagnose this. We know at what stage it's starting and the, the typical, you know, pathway of care. Um, we can alter that if we literally just change diet and exercise. <laughs> so, you know, the, the scope of the problem, we know, you know, one in every three Canadian adults either has prediabetes or type two diabetes. That's, that's millions of people that need our help. So that's pretty motivating to me. Almost pressing, like a, it's um, there's a need to help. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting too, because I I remember I graduated in 2007, and I distinctly remember having a conversation with a friend who graduated from a similar program at a different university, and we we're chatting about diabetes and about uh, new research at the time coming out showing how much exercise and diet can actually reverse it. And all of us just thought that was like mind blowing. That was amazing. Right. 
<laughs> so it's it's really neat to see and to hear and to read about just how much more we know. But I do believe you when you say that that we have so much more yet to learn about managing all of that. And it is really pressing. There's so much, there's so many people in our population who are um, on the brink of being unwell that really don't need to be. Yeah. And you know what? The the questions have shifted. So now, um, since those seminal articles have been published that really demonstrate that changing diet and exercise is literally twice as effective as the leading pharmaceutical agent for reversing type two for, for changing the pathway for people with prediabetes to type two, the research questions are really about, okay, now how can we, how can we help people who, you know, have these conditions to change their behavior? How can we modify healthcare practitioners views upon the importance of lifestyle modification as compared to prescriptions, right? How, how can we implement lifestyle modification programs in our communities in a sustainable manner so that more people who have these diseases um, can get access to them. Yeah, for sure. And I, we might have to have you on the podcast again in about five years to see if we have any more answers to these questions. <laughs> yeah. <Quick stuff. laughs> anyway, Mary, we have a few final wrap-up questions that we ask all of our guests. Okay. So, the first one is, what is the most impactful book you've read in the past year? <laughs> um, so my interests in research align with my personal interests, and one of them being self-compassion and self-care. <laughs> so I'm very slow at reading them because I don't spend enough time doing reading for the joy of it rather than research articles. But one book that I've read recently that I really enjoyed was Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. That's a and so book. Yeah, have you read it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah. Very much, I like that because it's kind of educational. It's informative for, um, you know, leading a, a team of young scientists that I have the opportunity and pleasure to do in my job. Um, but really instilling, yeah, compassion into that so that I, I can lead by example of taking care of myself. Yeah, and I think that was one of the biggest messages in her book that I resonated with is just that you really cannot lead from a point of not taking care of yourself. And mm -hmm. Also that your team, if you share values with your team members, meaning everyone's just aware of what each other's values are, then there's a very different level of function that's achieved. Mm -hmm everyone assumes what each other's values are in terms of how it leads to communication. And I can only imagine that as a female leader in research, that's huge to be able to get everybody on the same team and really also take care of yourself, given that you're also um, a parent. <laughs> and uh, knowing other values, but also knowing where they're starting from. So we all we all have stuff, right? We all have stuff that we're bringing into each day. And if we can gain a better appreciation of, of where everyone's at, um, we're probably going to be more compassionate with each other and, and more productive at the end of the day as a team. Absolutely. Yeah. Her big thing, kind and truthfulness go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So with, with that said, what is your non-negotiable daily self-care tool or habit? Ooh, well, I can, I'm, I'm proud of this one. My new year's resolution this year, I'm still sticking with it and we're almost one month done. <laughs> I, 
I find meditation really helpful to to ground me and reduce negative self-talk. So uh, I start each day at 5 a.m. with uh, mindfulness meditation and that way nobody else in the house is up and it's really dark out and <laughs> I can I can focus in on me. So that's my non-negotiable. I actually don't allow uh, my husband to wake up or make any noise even if he can't sleep because... <laughs> at that time because I, I then I get distracted <laughs> so that's my non-negotiable nobody interrupt me between 5 and 5 30. I'm laughing because my mom who's a physician did the exact same thing oh really ah oh, she's a smart woman yeah. <laughs> three of us and my dad wasn't as early a riser as as she was but yeah that was time that even if you were awake like you left mom alone <laughs> Uh, a way better more grounded mom <laughs> yeah then I can if I can help myself then I can help others better mm-hmm. yeah and you're helping your husband be more mindful too because if he wakes up and he knows he can't make a sound and he's meditating <laughs> <laughs> most mornings he's not worried about uh, getting up at 5 a.m <laughs> yeah yes yeah he's, he's on my team yeah so if you had five minutes with someone, what one thing would you try and impart to help them with their well-being? Hmm. Well, we've already discussed them. So you're going to think I'm lying, but I, I swear I'm not. I would talk about being kind and compassionate to oneself. I, I, I really would. I, I think it starts from there with the way that we train people to be counselors to others in the lab is from a point of empathy and understanding and we call it patient or client driven care. So instead of telling them you should exercise more, we ask them where where are you at? Where are you ready to start? What's a changeable time or a changeable thing in your life um, and what's not? And so that way they feel empowered that they're the boss, they know themselves best. And that kind of embodies, um, I'm doing this for myself kind of attitude, rather than, again, I'm being told and harped on and pointed fingers at and all that negative stuff. So if I only had five minutes, I'd be I'd be talking self care, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, that absolutely bears repeating, I think, because it is so, so easy to just get into the defeatist. Yeah. And then we do it too, right? Of like, oh, I should have done more of this, or I should have done that. And I used to beat myself up so much with regards to no, you didn't train enough. You would have gotten a better time if you did this. And then I realized longevity wise, those little drops did not matter and they did not help the outcome. Right, right. This is key. Um, so our final question for you is where can people find you? Oh, <laughs> so on Twitter, they can find me at Dr. Mary Jung with um, no periods and on our website, for my lab, which is called the Diabetes Prevention Research Group, is just dprg.ubc.ca. And then the pre-diabetes program that I've been talking about, we call that Small Steps for Big Changes. And so if you Google Small Steps for Big Changes UBC, that will get you to our website. And yeah, we'd love to, I'd love to hear from you. 
Perfect. We will link all of those in. And we cannot thank you enough for making time to chat with us today. I feel like your research and your insight is invaluable for both eating and exercise alike. Oh, excellent. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's it's enjoyable and, and the pleasure to talk about something that I'm really passionate about. So thanks for the time. Well, I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate it, Mary. So yes, once again, thank you so much. And we will talk to everyone next time on the Move Daily Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.